I'm excited to be joined by the one and only Eric Gotzi. He is, well, I'll let him tell his story, but he is the creator of Myths That Make Us podcast. He works in the Fit for Service program with Aubrey Marcus. He is an all-around fascinating dude from everything I've come across in terms of interest in psychology and science and intuition and, and myth and all these different areas of depth. So I love deep conversations. So I'm excited for this one with Eric. So welcome. Yeah, man. I really appreciate you having me on. And I still haven't gotten used to the format of our generation now where we have introductions, but I know that it must be done or else people won't know. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, I've been listening to podcasts for since the, the OG days, like 2008. And yeah. I've I've listened to a lot of different formats. And sometimes sometimes it's nice to do an intro. Sometimes it's nice to not do an intro and just dive in. But I, I yeah. figured we'd do it this time. Um, but I'd love to start. I want to go a, different, a few different directions with this conversation, I think. I think we have a lot of overlapping interests. And I think we both share this value of, of exploring curiosity and going deep, and, and especially with the psychological. I know you've dived into like Carl Jung and, and shadow work more in depth specifically, but we both have these interests in psychology and philosophy. And I kind of want to, to pair those together, kind of science versus, you know, hard science versus soft science or scientific truth versus yeah. intuitive truth. And we're kind of getting, I want to get into that, but I'd love to start with give us the broad the broad backstory, the origin story uh, of how you started on this train of, of of curiosity towards deeper ideas. Is that something that was yeah. early on in life or were you, is there, was there a certain moment that sort of activated you? Yeah. Like any good answer, it's a mix of both, but kind of what the broad brush strokes are. <clears throat> I had the perfect mix of a mother who loved me like fully, like Freud has this quote, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's something like, um, if you want a man who thinks that he can conquer the world, give him a mother who loves him. You know, that there's actually this deep psychological observation that if, if a son or if a boy has a mother that fully believes in him, you know, he gets this sense of potency, whether or not it's acclimated to reality is one thing, but he at least has the belief in himself that he can be big. So I had a mom like that, but she also had undiagnosed severe depression. And as a kid, I would experience like the radiant sun of her full love, and then it would just be gone for days. And I think that that kind of set a disposition in me where I felt like something was deeply wrong with the world, but it was also deeply beautiful because another psychological observation is that the attunement between the nervous system of the newborn and the mom, it kind of sets the atmospheric emotion of how life feels to the kid. Like, is it something that I can trust? Is it something fundamentally that's not trustworthy? You know, is it something that will nurture me if I yell out and ask for help, etc.? So I had this fundamental juxtaposition of radiant love and then wasteland type of feeling. And I think that kind of set the tone. And then when I was like seven or eight, 
I remember being told by like a preacher or somebody what heaven was. And the preacher explained it to me like, you know, if you're a good boy, when you die, you'll go to heaven. And heaven is this place up in the sky where um, everyone you love will be there and you'll always be happy and you'll be able to be with the people that you love forever. And he for sure told me this in a way that was like, you're going to get there, kid. It's going to be great. And I remember going home that night. And as I was going to sleep, my brain was trying to conceptualize what it would mean to have to be in something somewhere forever. And like, I didn't have the words for it back then, but it was basically like an existential crisis that like broke my brain where basically the feeling was. I'm inside of a game that was created by this dude and his name is God and there's no way out and that the best possible outcome, the best it can possibly be is that I will have to like what I imagined in my, you know, eight year old brain was I will have to relive the same type of day where I am this age as an eight year old with my family and we have to go to church and we have to wear white and it's happy and we have to be happy forever. And it broke my brain. It like, it was still like the clearest, most prominent like trauma I had as a child. You know, like hmm. I got beat, not, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it was probably a three, but I don't think my dad could look me in the eye and say that he didn't beat me. But like I had my share of traumas, um, not super severe, but that was an order of magnitude higher than being beaten by my dad because there was like, it broke something in me. It wounded me in some way. And for the, like the next week, I would basically get caught in that loop of trying to comprehend forever. And then I would start to cry. And then I would pray to the God that I thought confided me to this game to help me forget so that I could sleep. And after about a week, that kind of like just fell into the background. I think that created the baseline for why I was interested in deep things, what my mom was like, and that experience with forever. You know, and then puberty started. I only cared about basketball and girls for like 10 years. And then I had a career ending injury. And my career in basketball at best would have been a role player in a European league where I made like 28K a year. But still, I was pretty good. Once I tore my rotator cuff as a senior, it was over. And that's when I got back into philosophy. And then that's when I heard my first podcast, 2009. And that's when I got introduced to this idea called psychedelics. Like I had vaguely heard about mushrooms, but I'd associated mushroom use with like the quote unquote losers in the town that I came from. And then in college as a freshman, um, started doing psychedelics. And then I found Carl Jung. And then once I found Carl Jung, um, I started to learn how to pay attention to my dreams. And then once I started getting into my dreams, it opened me up to a whole different a whole different world. It's like a different cosmology once you start to understand the language of dreams, the world, quote unquote, of dreams, that the dream world and the psychedelic state of consciousness, it's the same room in the mansion of your psyche. And I now have basically lived with that mystery of like the dream world in tandem with the fact that we live in a waking reality of space and time that has laws of physics that have never been broken. 
that no matter what type of yogi or guru or what type of powers you have since the invention of cameras, no one has defied the laws of physics. But before cameras, everyone was talking about all these yoga yogis and all these gurus who were able to, you know, do things that didn't fit into the laws of physics. Uh, the laws of physics will 100% of the time tell you how fast the rocket will go or how fast the rock will fall. And it's just, it's not behooving to anyone who wants to be competent and awake in reality for them to have uh, squiggly understandings of physics. But physics and space and time is one type of reality, and your dream life is different. And just to put the pin on this, and then I'll finally stop talking, I appreciate your patience, is one of the great wounds of our modern time is that we don't appreciate the profundity and the, and the validity of the dream world. Like, again, this map I'm trying to paint for people is there's space and time. That's where physics is God, basically. And then there's, you could call it the dream world, where physics is not God. Physics does not apply. And we, our modern wound is that most people don't even see the dream. Most people can't even grok it. But if they do believe in it, they don't believe it's real. Like compared to space and time, it's not real. I could talk about this for the entire podcast, but I think this is one of the core psychological wounds that we have right now. And people who believe that the earth is flat, they're in this psychological wound. People who are religious and try to defend their holy books as if they're scientific fact that happened in history in space and time, they're caught up in this wound. People who have psychedelic experiences and misinterpret the dream for a factual description of a future event that they then, you know, like ruin their family for because they believe that they saw that they're supposed to be with this other person and they didn't interpret it as a dream. They're in this one. People who have really potent dream lives and then they try to force it onto people around them to make them believe like, oh, I am Jesus. They're confused. And so having those wounds as a kid and then finding dreams as a young man after having already been an arduent atheist for 10 years and really getting my feet and my hands into the sand of the scientific method. That's what keeps me curious is that there's a fundamental mystery and it's in the dream world. Really, there's fundamental mysteries all around us. But for me, what has kept the curiosity infinite is it's like, what the fuck is inside of us that dreams when we're unconscious? What the fuck inside of us can teach us things that we don't know? Like, there's just infinite mystery there. That's so fascinating. I just love hearing as well, okay, 10 years of arduous atheist, like all this experience, you could say, with that Western, if you will, vantage point of that scientific method. And yet there's all this, this, this whole other world, psychedelics with dream world. And this is, I mean, this is the juice of where my curiosity has been taking me the past two years, basically, since having, I mean, diving into psychedelics three years ago, and then, yeah, just encountering more people who are having a couple of my own subjective experiences that's, that were inexplicable. In, in and I just been naturally curious about 
this integration, you could say, between this this clear material world and this potential non-material world. But what would you say, like if you were to put your scientific hat on and argue against the existence of the dream world being anything more than simply just brain chemistry and neurological processing of what happened in your life and what how would you perhaps argue against the existence of that ineffable non-material world yeah so um this is a great exercise thank you for asking me this okay so i'm gonna put that hat on my subjective experience is too squiggly of a thing to use as a measurement to create a coherent worldview. You know, and I'm really just going to go into character. I'm just going to be a different person. I'm just going to pretend like, you know, my mom was schizophrenic. So my mom's subjective world was so scattered, you know, that she would sometimes try to put us in the oven because she thought that it would help alleviate the cold that we had. Um, you know, that's not something that I ever want to try to build. And that's not something I ever want to support. And not only do I not want to support it, I want to be such a strong advocate on the other side that anyone who listens to me will never end up in that type of situation. But ultimately, if I step back into me, the scientist in me would have to concede. I have to admit I'm not willing to contend with the phenomenon with a phenomenological fact that I dream. I'm just going to remove that because it's not something that I can measure. So I am admitting that I'm going to cut out a huge swath of the human experience because it doesn't concede itself to the tools that I have to measure it. The reason I do that is because I want to help add a brick to the cathedral of the scientific method that the West has been producing for the last, you know, X amount of hundreds of years, because we're killing ourselves as a species. This is the first time in our history that we have a window to become an interplanetary species. And this window might close soon. And if it does close, it might not ever open again. And we might be one of the countless civilizations that don't pass through this window where they're able to become interplanetary and then they extinct themselves because they get too good at at extracting resources from the planet before the planet can replenish them. So I don't give a fuck about your dreams. I have to learn how rockets work, you know? So have you read, have you read Ayn Rand? I've, I've read her essay on selfishness, like, like her argument that it's impossible to be altruistic. And, um, I understand the gist of Atlas Shrugged, but I've never been able to get myself to sit down and read it. Yeah. Atlas Shrugged. It took me two, two pulls at it to get, to get going. The first hundred pages are a little slower and then it picks up. But the reason I ask is that's definitely I'm I've never I've read her main novels and I've read I've read three of her novels and I've been influenced by her ideas and I have questions about her as well especially the psychological but what the value I get from her is that like epistemological rigor I think that's where I get curious 
is how do we know what we know, right? How do we know and how are we not falling prey potentially to fooling ourselves through that subjective experience, right? And so, yeah, that's where I get curious is like that scientific hat where, I mean, look, I think I personally am at this place where I'm owning that I believe there is non-material reality and and things like psychedelics and dreams and these ineffable experiences I hear about have given and, and that I have had it myself. I feel confident in saying, I feel still a little bit vulnerable about admitting it, but I think it's, I feel confident that non-material reality is part of reality. Now I think, I think it can be explained with science, right? It can be explained, but maybe it can't be explained yet. Or maybe it can be explained with science, but it's like everything has some sort of cause, even if it's, we don't know what it is, right? Like absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So yeah, just, just would love to hear you reflect more on that in terms of that epistemological rigor when it comes to these, these less tangible concepts. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that come up. This is juicy. Let me see if I can remember each one. One is, um, if you believe that you can't, if you don't trust yourself to explore outside of what you feel you can scientifically articulate and prove, you're like a person who has an entire continent to explore, but won't move out of the lamp that he has or the little fire that he has because he doesn't trust that he can go into the darkness. It's just boring. Now, there's lots of cool stuff that you can do within the light of the fire. And, you know, you can build houses, you can build wells, you can do mathematics. But an invitation to some people is like, because I have the psychology background, there's a thing worth offering is that for the people listening to you who resonate with that perspective of like the epistemological rigor, an interesting game for them to play would be, What would it feel like for you to do actions that would feel like you were a bad boy? Because there's a part of us that want to be good little boys and good little girls, and we want to do it just right because, you know, the inner projection of mom and dad onto culture that we have, it's like, I want to be just right, and I'll, you know, proof all of my mathematical expressions, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, who are we doing this for? There really is no quote unquote right way. There's, and we can go deeper into that. But so an invitation to people is if you feel constrained epistemologically, which is how do you know you know, it's like go do shit that you can't explain and just be a messy poet for a day and just see what that feels like. So that's one thing I want to offer. The other thing is anyone listening right now who is vulnerable or doesn't believe in non-material reality there's just some things that we need to talk about real quick. Number one, there is not a single person, there's not a single scientist on the planet that has a scientific explanation for why brain activity creates the subjective experience of consciousness. This is called the hard problem of consciousness. There is not, a, there is not even a single person on this planet, as far as I'm aware, that even knows how to articulate the type of experiment that we could do to explore why we believe that brain activity creates the subjective experience of consciousness. 
as far as scientific evidence goes, and this might be a big secret for a lot of people listening, as far as scientific evidence goes, consciousness is non-material reality. We have all sorts of beliefs that are not the result of scientific proof that because if certain parts of the brain are injured, we see certain aspects of consciousness go away. That seems to be rock hard. But still, there is not, there is not only no evidence that brain activity creates, there's no causal evidence that brain activity creates consciousness. We don't even know how to articulate a study to begin to explore how it could. Like, it's, it's, it's called the hard problem of consciousness, and it's been that way, you know, for decades. And so, consciousness is non-material reality. And for the nerds who want to go deeper, like, have you heard of Donald Hoffman? No, I don't think so. All right. Any part of you that is wavy about claiming your belief in a non-material reality will be set aflame once you read <laughs> Don Hoffman. The gist of it is he has done the work to get to the mathematic the mathematically rigorous explanation that observable reality, space-time, matter, all material, is a collectively evolved user interface of a fundamental reality that is beyond comprehension, and that the non-material, hyper-mathematical objects that we can't even comprehend, that's base reality. And space-time, matter, atoms, molecules, all of that shit is actually an illusion. And it's the, in the same way that the icons on your computer right now are technically illusions. They're adaptive illusions. So it's not like they're just completely bullshit. But if you look at the icons on your computer, there is not a face with a smiley face in your computer. There is not a chrome like a Google Chrome spinny wheel inside of your computer. The truth of your computer is that there's a whole bunch of different um, transistors that open and close to let electricity move. And then that's measured by some type of material device into ones and zeros. And then the ones and zeros are used to create every single thing that you interact with. And when you click on an icon, the icon allows you to do 10,000 steps worth of ones and zero processing. So you don't have to just say one or, you know, electricity off, 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 electricity, electricity off. And that space and time is a user interface. And so I, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole. It's not my area of expertise, but he's been studying this for 10 plus years. He's got incredible just evidence after evidence. Uh, just to give you a sense of how real Don yeah. Hoffman's work is. I've been a fan of Sam Harris since I was, you know, a fucking teenager. As I get older, I start to feel more and more that he's actually kind of a snarky bitch. Like he's super <laughs> smart and I love how he's able to cut through stuff, but he's kind of a snarky bitch, you know? And just like, as I get older, I'm like, you don't need to say it that meanly yeah, about I that dude you, that you don't you. agree with, but still love him. Still love him. Don Hoffman went on Sam Harris's podcast and Sam Harris had his wife on with him, who's an expert in like the research on consciousness. 
I've never heard Sam Harris agree with someone that he didn't agree with at the beginning of the podcast. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So if like Don Hoffman is playing at the highest level, the dude's a genius and the things that he are, the things that he is claiming are every spiritual person's wet dream. And he went on fucking Sam Harris's <laughs> podcast with Annika Harris. And um, I've never seen like, if debates are jujitsu, I've never seen, seen Sam concede to having like his arm put behind his back. You know, and it was just like, that's amazing. I've never seen this I'll, in my life. I'll definitely yeah. check that out. Okay. So I love that a few minutes ago, you said that bit about for those that really want that epistemological rigor, at least invite awareness about your childhood experience and any projections being, being a good boy or being right. I love that. And I think it's, essential one one thing i say on my podcast is that if we want to be fully philosophically congruent and and clear we it is essential that we integrate our own personal psychology into the philosophical claims we're making in the sense that we need to be constantly aware of how we might be projecting these childhood experiences and beliefs and so forth into our actual argument. And if we, if we just make philosophy its own bucket away from psychology, then you're, I don't think you're actually doing philosophy. Um, so I, I love, I love that you're putting awareness on that, um, and, and inviting that for the people who are in that more epistemological scientific camp. Now I'm actually curious about, again, there's not many people I think who necessarily are, are equally versed in both like the science and spirituality sides. And I'm really curious because what I also, believe and witness i at least perceive and my um my hypothesis is that there are many people in the, who are in a spiritual world if you will who are like oh yeah definitely non-material reality 100 percent. who aren't seeking to question themselves who aren't seeking to falsify yeah and then fall into a, what you might call spiritual bypass would you agree that's the case for a lot of people in that world is that fair I will admit that I don't have a random sampling of yeah, that me, world. Me either. Yeah, me either. And that the, like, I would imagine, like, that if you have some of the, like, spirituality 101 gifts that people get when you move into that, that, like, it starts to give you, like, a tremendous ease into feeling awe into feeling gratitude into feeling like a spiritual dimension to life where it feels like there's a conscious something that is a super intelligence that permeates everything. There's a lot of good things that you can get from that. What I imagine is that the people who are competent in space-time, who have any of that goodness from the 101 spirituality worldview, they're not listening to me on Instagram. They're out in the world doing really dope shit that they're able to do because they have competence in, you know, changing around atoms in space and time. Or if they do enjoy my content, they don't comment often because they probably have good boundaries. But so the random, the non-random sample of a spiritual right. community that I get to interact with are the people who are one, um, addicted to Instagram, because that's kind of the main platform that I use. 
and are prone to comment on on shit on Instagram, which again, I think both of those are probably reflections of not great boundaries. Anyways, as a, as a average, I would say, yes, it's true. And it's, there's a couple of reasons here. One, most of us have educational trauma wounds and maybe trauma is not the right word here, but most of us have educational wounds in the sense that Most of us were put into a system that was literally not a made-up conspiracy. It was literally designed to produce factory workers. And that's why we had bells. And that's why we had all these rows of chairs. We were supposed to sit and be able to listen. There is no, like, deep, not even deep, there is no scientific evidence that that's how humans should learn that that's what education is supposed to be, that we're supposed to spend a year inside of you know this room that we go to every day, and then we get an exam of things that are memorized as opposed to anything creative and new. And it's because we were trying to create factory workers because the factory was one of the most important pieces of modern technologies that we invented that changed you know culture across the entire world. You know, so you can go into the conspiracy and think like Rockefeller and all that is like, you know, super evil baby eater type thing. But that's just not useful, I think, for most cases. We wanted to make factories and we wanted to make factory workers and we haven't updated this fucking model. And so most people who didn't get really good at the scientific method and, you know, changing reality to fit what they wanted it to be and then creating things from it, most people in our country just aren't good at it. Like most people, if you really got in there with them, you would find that they have tremendous shame around math or around reading or around doing anything that has an actual right answer because school sucked. And to pair that with an age of we are so incompetent on average because our culture is so competent that like most of us are able to be 30-year-old adults and we don't know how to skin an animal. We don't know how to build a fire. We don't know how to fucking understand what directions are if we were out in the wild. Like we don't know how to use the sun and the time of day to figure out what directions we're in. We don't know what plants grow in what seasons in the places that we live. Just a huge swath of things we don't have access to because of how convenient our lives have been because of how competent our culture has been and then you sprinkle in the psychedelic revolution so you just have Mm. people who who aren't connected to their land so they don't have practical wisdom and then you have a broken educational system that is you know the woe of the west in some ways um it's got parts of it that do well but it could be way better. And then sprinkle in the, the psychedelic revolution. People without deep roots are being catapulted up into heaven. You know, and it's like on on some levels, the most wild spiritual shit is actually true. But it's 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 true but incomplete. And the incomplete part is, and your consciousness, as far as we understand, is intertwined in this meat suit, and the meat suit plays in a arena of space and time. And I don't care what you think you're able to do 
Don't try to fly by stepping off of the ledge of a building. Always start on the ground. And then by the time that you realize that you can't fucking do it, you know, don't spiral too far down, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love this. And reference to the school system, that this is my wheelhouse, man. Like, this is my topic that I love, top two topics that I love the most, talking about the school system and the fact that we are conditioned to not use our own minds and our faculty of reason and rationality and clarity, but rather to delegate that thinking, outsource that thinking to the authority, basically, to to teachers. And this is embedded in the system. Again, it's not it's not a shame blame game here of of calling teachers evil. I reject that as well. But I what we call out the honesty of the system, what we have is these implicit messages of do what the teacher says and don't question. So that plays out in all sorts of directions as people grow up, whether they turn toward, I mean, if you're turning towards spirituality, then there could be a whole good chunk of the spiritual non-material paradigms you're coming across is actually truth. But because you haven't deconditioned your mind from from the school experience, perhaps, then you you bypass that that falsification process or questioning or trying to understand the epistemology. And then, yeah, then you fall prey to that. So, I, I, but I think this, see, this is my thing. I think scientists fall prey to this too. 100% right? they do. So it's, 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 we need to, everyone I invite in the whole world to, to question how they are staying in their comfort zone and, and question how their, their childhood experience is, is filtering their worldview and their any confirmation bias. I think spiritual people are, are falling into confirmation bias, and I think scientists are, are falling into confirmation bias. Yeah, so I want to riff on this idea with you because I completely agree, and I'm interested in, like, how do we make this sexy for people? Because um, yeah. to call it falsifying is not sexy, and to call it confirmation right. bias is not sexy. Right. It's like we got a Trojan horse, people. But so just to kind of lay out the groundwork, the spiritual community that lacks this capacity and this skill, it's a skill that you have to cultivate because your your intuition is to not do it. But the skill of testing your hypotheses, and that's just a placeholder until we find something more sexy, the spiritual people who don't do this, they fall into cults. They fall yeah. into um, exploitative relationships, and they tend to they tend to be exploited. People in the scientific community who don't do this, they tend to be more likely to um, falsify their studies. You know, because if they want a certain paradigm to be true and they want to get tenure, and they're a little bit behind yeah. on the amount of blah, blah, blahs that they do. And it also, I think, it affects the type of studies that they choose to do, where they will often do studies that they believe will have a, um, you know, it's the replication crisis. Almost no one is trying to do replications because they, they want to do a type of study that if it goes through, they're going to get their names in the newspaper and they're going to get cited. And, you know, it's something like 
you know, that this was an article a few years ago, but it was something like 80% of um, psychological studies that had been done in the last, I think, 10 or 20 years had not been replicated. And it's like, like we're just charging down this path of um, trying to get tenure, trying to be a part of the club, trying to get as many citations as we can possibly get. And it's because we don't have, what's the right way to put it? There's not an incentive structure for scientists to be entrepreneurs and for them to not be beholden yes. to grant yes. money and to having to basically be, you know, like, please government or please corporations, please feed me funding and I'll do whatever I need to do to try to get that funding. And it's like, you know, our scientific community is not as free as it could be. Yeah, the academic and scientific worlds are so incentivized for just churning out the new studies and there's all this peer review stuff that is not necessarily actually, um, it becomes this uh, inside almost good old boys club perhaps like with getting peer reviewed studies. And so I just want to insert that like the incentives are so powerful here. Right. And it's bloated and it's everyone can be a scientist. Anyone can be a scientist. And the essence of being a scientist is it's, it's fundamentally radical curiosity, like just an insatiable curiosity have the discipline to track your observations so that you can actually um, do the most critical step, which is after you try different experiments, you then look at the evidence with the intention to prove your dumbass wrong. You know, it's just kind of like that is like a nutshell. And man, my spiritual homies don't, like almost any step in that process. They they don't like, they love to be curious, but they love to be curious about stuff that they want to be curious about. They don't want to be curious mm. about stuff they don't want to be curious about. Like just as a really uncomfortable example, how many people right now are curious about Hamas? How many people are curious about Israel? Or how many, how many people have made up their mind, have posted their post on Instagram, have set their flag, and they think that, you know, it's done. It's good. Like, it's a rant that I don't want to go on for too long, but it's like um, no one posting who is not living in those areas knows what the fuck they're talking about. But that's a whole different thing. How many people are curious about either COVID or about the potential, you know, global cover-up, you know, because either COVID was what we were told it was, or there's a global or at least multinational coordinated cover-up of multiple things. And that's fucking scary for people. But the thing that the spiritual homies that I know are the most adverse to is they don't like to measure and they don't like to try to disprove because there's this whole thing in the spiritual space where, you know, if you seek to disprove it, it won't. You, it's, it's almost like the cool spiritual thing is like an animal. And if you disbelieve it too much, it kills it. You know? Yeah. And this goes back to something I said at the beginning of the podcast. I think there's a world larger than what the scientific tool is able to measure. And I think that might be somewhere where you and me might disagree. But so 
I think that there is a world, I think life is larger than the tool that science can measure. Does that mean that the tool that science measures is wrong? No. The easiest example is with physics, we have two different models that we use to try to cover the spectrum of reality. There's Newtonian, Einstein physics of the large, and there's quantum physics. They both work and they don't agree, you know? And so like for me, there's space-time, and then there's the dream world. And it's, it's, it's two different models, and they're both, quote-unquote, we definitely don't have like a physics of the dream world, you know, but that's something that I hope to improve our culture's clarity on 1% before I die. Yeah. Because I think it's that important. But, you know, it's two models. Yeah, I think I do agree. I think there is limitation to the scientific method and there can be elements of reality that are simply not, we're not able to isolate variables in that way to actually have the scientific proof or whatnot. Like when I read a good poem and I cry, I don't yeah. care about science. When I'm having great sex and I'm about to orgasm, I don't care about science. And I don't want to bring, I'm not trying to falsify a poem. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to falsify a dream. I think that's to misunderstand the essence of a dream. I think, falsifying and that whole process is so useful when we're in space time because when you don't try to falsify what you believe you can get things like lobotomies that win nobel prizes or you can get things like believing that the earth is the center of the universe and all the stars rotate around us and then if you show any observations to the contrary of that we will literally burn you alive you know so it's great but if you have a dream that if you tended to, what could grow out of it could be a piece of art that as you work on for the next two weeks, you can feel that it's processing something from your childhood that you can't articulate. If you tried to falsify that dream when you first had it, you would have never have gotten that gift. You know, and it's just, there's two, there is an aspect of experience that the fact that it is can't not be. And I know that doesn't fucking make sense. But what I mean is, if you have a dream, we're in the dream, you fight with the person that you need to have a fight with. You wake up with a different energy in you that you wouldn't have gotten if you didn't have the experience of having the fight with the person. And you can't falsify it unless you're going to gaslight yourself. Like, here's an yeah. example. Have you ever had moments of synchronicity where... I'm not asking the brain. I'm asking the heart and the gut where mm. something happens. And there's a correspondence between an inner story about either like just some inner experience and then the outer experience to the point where it, it like ripples through you like lightning. And then only after you get the goosebumps, do you have the opportunity to try to explain it away. I've definitely had, my heart says I've had moments of synchronicity. I don't know if it's been the full ripple of lightning type goosebump moment, but I'm with you. So there's something that starts to happen. You could call it on the spiritual path where in order for you to try to falsify the experience, you will also have to look away from the felt sense 
in your body that you're gaslighting yourself. Mm. You are actively lying to yourself about something. So I'll just give you my, the most poignant synchronicity I've ever had was, um, I was like 19 or 20 <clears throat> and I was going on a walk around where I lived and I was reading a book and, um, on one of the pages, there was a quote and the quote was something like the way to walk the world like a prince is to cast golden apples for other people to eat and for you to eat yours on the day that you die. So like the idea being like, whatever is what you most want, you get to taste the achievement on the day that you die. Cool quote, don't really care much about it. But the moment I read that quote, I look up to turn onto a new street, you know, just to like cross the street. And in the middle of the street is a golden apple. So you know those apples that are red and gold? Um, I'm in Texas. It's the summer. I'm in the suburbs. There is no one outside in their driveway. You know, it's like a s small road, probably 20 houses total. There's no one out. It's not like a person dropped something in that moment from their car. Um, and the way that the apple was positioned in the street, the part that was facing me was gold. The way that hit me in that moment <clears throat> was... um. Like I had started doing psychedelics that year, you know, I was, I was getting a degree in cognitive psychology. I was studying philosophy. I had taken LSD and mushrooms and DMT, and I was still convinced all of those things are just playing with the chemical soup in my brain. Yeah. I'm still in my materialistic scientist universe, and I'm able to contain all of those experiences within, within that. What happened when I saw the apple is it wasn't anything that I did with my brain. It was like a spontaneous emergence throughout my body where the like lightning feeling was, oh my God, I don't understand. Whatever this is, is greater than whatever I could understand. It's conscious. It has a particular interest in me. And by that, I don't mean that I'm special. I mean that whatever this thing is, it seems to have a specific, particular bridge with each individual human if they would be audacious enough to let themselves open up to it. And the last part is it seems to have a sense of humor. Like, what the fuck is that? And just all of that spontaneously arose. And that apple in the street, and when that happened, I was sober. You know, it was just a fucking... 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, I'm just going on my walk. I'm reading. And it was a spontaneous somatic feeling that after the fact, I could feel that any attempt to try to get at it, I was gaslighting myself. And I was like aware enough to recognize like, oh, I'm gaslighting myself. I don't know anything more or I don't claim to know anything more than there is something emanating beyond space-time that appears as if it is conscious, interested, and has a sense of humor. Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful, these moments and this conversation and these, this juice of this integration between trying to understand things with clarity while also trusting that heart 
You know, it's a really interesting point about the gaslighting is like, I never thought about it in that way. But I've definitely, as I said, as I said earlier, I feel confident in just owning that I believe there's a non-material world because I've been examining these and I won't get into all my inexplicable experiences necessarily right now, but I've been examining them the past two years and it just like seeking to falsify and it gets to that point where you're like, do I trust myself or not? Right. And I think there's a lot of value in recognizing there is this potentially just intangible, ineffable truth. Right. Another entry point into this way to think about this is I have a background as a, as an artist, as a musician, as a classical musician. So I've had these profound experiences in symphony orchestras and conducting ensembles and being in ensembles and experiencing this harmonious, blissful goosebump moments, right? And it's like, is that is that not something that is true? Even at the sa- if at the same time we can't measure it, right? And I know Jordan Peterson has alluded to this, like this idea of actually the symphonic orchestra and the harmonious synthesis of of the the you know the creativity of the composer with the the literal overtone series and the harmonic like synergy of a major chord. You know, I'm just thinking like the the, the last chord of Mahler's third symphony which the, the the last movement is titled what love tells me and it ends in this just glorious d major chord and he says on the, on the he instructs in the score like hold this note as long as possible and it's just like this you just sink into it after this incredible 30 minute movement about love and then like how is that that goosebump moment we can't measure that. Yeah, we can't measure we can't measure the orgasm. We can't measure the, you know, holding a child in your arms. And so the question is is, is that not some is that not pointing to a, a a truth about the world and then it is, you know, again, going back to the the scientific side, you know, there's and where the synchronicity thing there's plenty of people who have that bias, right? Oh, I I had Oh, this person called me when I was thinking about them five minutes ago. Therefore, therefore, it is a truth in all these types of cases that there is that God is like directing this phone call or something like that. When it could be the case, there's just ran, there is randomness and, and coincidence that's not a, it's not necessarily non-material. Like I think I think we can have both. Like I think we don't need to interpret the synchronicities always as some grand divine thing. For sure, but to, but to say the opposite and to say the these ineffable moments are just 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 manifestations of material truth. Yeah, that seems also short sighted. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So a couple, one, it's it's fucking awesome that you've uh, been and have played in symphonies because I think that is yeah. one of the best metaphors to explain like, or to help people start to grok what the fuck is going on. So if we just zoomed out, there's a planet floating in space that has 8 billion little squishy things that are able to be self-reflective. 
On some level, they know that they're going to die. On some level, they know that eventually the universe will expand to such a state that everything that could be won't be because everything will be too far apart. But that's really far away. You know, on some level as a collective thing, we know that our son will die. Hmm. We also all know, or at least have the illusion, the choices that I make and the behaviors that I do and the things that I interact with can either create pain or the opposite of pain. So I can do, I seem to have the illusion that my choices can hurt me or my choices can help me. So what do I do in this moment, in this moment, in this moment? Like we're all playing a game inside of the context of we're going to die and that ultimately this might not mean anything, you know, but we have to keep that stuff real, real deep down. And, you know, there's obviously the people who believe that they won't ever actually die that, you know, when they died, but in the privacy of their own heart and you best believe if you started to strangle them and they, and you could be inside of their head, mm. almost no one is spiritually aligned enough where they don't feel terror about death. So we're all playing games. Like, what do I do with the fact that I'm in this situation? I'm going to die and my choices can either make me feel pain or make me feel the opposite of pain. And there's lots of opposites of pain. But when you're when pain's high enough, that's the whole universe. It's just you and your pain and what you could potentially do to make the pain less. So everyone's playing games. One of the games is be a philosopher who is in alignment with truth. And you talk to other philosophers about truth and you guys get to like, again, if you're from the alien viewpoint, oh, these humanoids like to be indoors. They like to be around chairs and they like to stay inside most of the time. They really like to be bent over desks and read old repurposed trees. Like that's what those humans love to do. And then there's humans that, you know, they just want to fuck. And then there's humans that just want to be in the awe of the climax and the crescendo of the orchestra. You know, there's, just, there's all these different games that we can play. Yeah. And the thing about philosophers or for philosophy is it's like, it's, it's almost like earn the right to be a philosopher after you've gotten competent enough at a real skill that then it then becomes ethical for you to learn philosophy. So what I mean by huh. that is if you're able to shoot a gun, you should probably start to work on your ethics. If you're able to build a bridge or if you're really good at organizing people where you could get 100,000 people to rally around your cause, you, you should probably learn some ethics and some philosophy. But if you don't know how to take care of your body, like if you're weak, if you actually have a, a intersubjective relationship with your body that you're weak, and only you in the privacy of your own heart will know that, you don't need to be doing philosophy all the time because it's really just a way for you to avoid being radically alive. And if you ever get any type of influence with your philosophy, you're going to treat people like shit because you hate yourself because you can feel in your body that you're not safe. Like, especially men, if you've never been in a fight there is probably some part of you that is deeply insecure about whether or not you would be okay. And then if you have been in fights, you start to get an intuitive understanding of, like, when I'm at this event, when I'm at this AA meeting, 
my body is tracking. If I had to defend myself, could I? You know, and the people who can tend to be gentler, nicer, on the most part. There, I forget who the quote is by, but um, I've I wrote it down, and it's in my collection of quotes, and I've read it over and over again for the last ten years. But every philosophy is a confession of the personality of the philosopher. Every major philosophy, Hegel. Plato, Nietzsche, they are not, they are more a confession of the constitution of the personality of the individual who used their intellect to describe their worldview than they are arbiters of a eternal one truth. And it's because we're 8 billion little squishy things on a planet. We all know that we're going to die. We all have prefrontal cortexes that are able to be self-reflective. And ultimately, we're trying to figure out how to live a good life, quote unquote. And there's a vein of philosophy that is really just fucking science. And it's like the right or wrong answers, it's physics. If it has a right or wrong answer, it's physics. The real juice of philosophy for me is when the philosopher realizes that they're playing the game of philosophy and so they have some humor and they have some self-awareness that they're playing a fucking game. And then they present it as art. Have you heard of Robert Anton Wilson? Uh, yes, not very familiar though. Uh, Prometheus Rising and Cosmic Trigger are the antidotes to a philosopher without the self-awareness that they're playing a game. You know? Like, like Kant could have used some fucking play in his life. <laughs> the books he wrote, great. But if you actually read about how he was as a person, I don't know him. God rest his soul. He was a great mind. But he feels like he was a terrified and insecure physical creature. Like his fucking mind was a gem, you know, like one of the greatest gems ever fashioned in the history of written language. But in the privacy of his own heart and from the people who were closest to him, you know, did they want to hang out with him? Was he happy? I don't know. You know, that's not yeah, a great console fucking God. He's fucking Well, I'm, I'm thinking about Ayn Rand now again, and she's a adamant atheist, and she's very, I guess, stern is one word that comes to mind in her personality. And and sort of strict and firm. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that she's really, I, don't, I mean, I don't think she did, did psychedelics. I don't think she's really doing integration work with her inner child. And, you know, this, this potentially is a signal of you know, how her, how philosophy in, in her works as brilliant as she is, um, potentially there's that, um, that shortcoming because she's not fully integrated. And then like her, her disciple, um, I guess that's the right word. Disciple, uh, Nathaniel Brandon, the psychologist, he was diving much more into that softer psychology side. That's like one of his critiques of her. Um, so yeah, it just, it goes back to this, this whole integration where of philosophy and psychology in, in order to, to really, you know, one thing Brandon said is in order to think clearly, you need to feel deeply and feel mm -hmm. deeply to think clearly. 
Yeah. So I, I love thinking about this sort of symbiosis of it all. Um, but this, this sort of segues and I kind of want to sh- shift a bit into that deeper psychological world with you. And, you know, you've mentioned, you've mentioned school and you've mentioned shame and you've mentioned, obviously you have a, have a you've dived into Carl Jung and, 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 and IFS therapy as well, right? Yep. Um, and this, I've, I've dived pretty deep into the IFS and, um, not as deep into the young, but you know, it's all the same territory and like, yeah, well, I guess I, I don't necessarily have a, a pointed question, but would love to invite you to, to sort of maybe integrate what we've talked about so far with all this philosophical worldview stuff and like, and how like the, how the unconscious mind is playing into this as well as like how, you know, thoughts, thoughts on, on integrating these shadows and integrating these parts of ourselves so we can really build that healthy, wholesome world, you know, the future. And I like, that's like one thing I've seen on your Instagram is you had this post about, um, uh, four ways to fuck up saving the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said, believe only you can do it. Uh, believe it has to be done now. Uh, you do not have a sense of humor or humility. And then number four, strongest, you don't believe it's possible. Um, and that, that really, that really struck with me because I'm really desiring to build new visions for humanity based on healthy paradigms and self integration and capital S self wholeness and all these amazing things. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious in our remaining time to, to start moving in that direction about like visions for humanity and, and, um, and how the self integration, the, the shadow work is so essential. So yeah, I'll just kind of volley back to you with how you want to take this. Yeah. Where to start? The thing about Carl Jung that I loved so much is everything with the philosophy that we've talked about. Most people, most philosophers, and most scientists, they don't appreciate the instrument that they're using to measure. And if you take for granted the instrument that you're using to measure, you will very likely misunderstand what you measure. So if you were a astronomer and you didn't know the difference between two t- telescopes and that one was more zoomed in and one wasn't, if you didn't understand that, you couldn't do any of your fucking measurements. They wouldn't translate. The instrument we're all using is our psyche. And our psyche is an instrument that we don't understand. Because the nature of our psyche is that the majority of it is not conscious. So the map that I tend to use is these are really rough estimates, but 90% of your, I'll start at the top, 1% of you is conscious. And the part of you that is conscious is the part of you that's listening to me right now. It's the part of you that responds when you hear your name. Um, The like, the bits of information that the conscious mind are able to process are, you know, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's like 128 bits of information. And that it actually correlates to the focal point of the eye, that the actual amount of clarity that you have in your eyesight is incredibly small. It's just that your eyes move around all the time and you're unconsciously creating what your best guess is of reality based off of the eye movements that you've done and everything you've ever learned about the space that you've been in and the physics that you have. But the actual clarity of your visual eyesight right now 
is very small and everything else is being filled in unconsciously. You're not actually processing it because you can't. It's too much. So conscious mind, 1%. 9% is subconscious. And subconscious is anything that could be made conscious at will, but isn't currently conscious. So if I ask you when you were born, you didn't have that in your conscious 128 bits of information before I asked you. But once I asked you, you can offer it up. If I ask you to wiggle your leftmost toe on your left foot, the moment before I asked you, you probably hadn't thought about your left toe, you know, all day or longer. But the moment I ask you, that part of you comes online. So that's subconscious. So really, it's like there's conscious and then there's unconscious. The conscious is anything that can be brought into the flashlight at will. And then what's in the flashlight is conscious and then anything that can be brought is subconscious. Unconscious is anything that can't be brought into consciousness at will. You have a bunch of shit in your unconscious that through doing the work could be brought into the subconscious. And that's like traumas. That's like repressed memories. That's like parts of your shadow, blah, blah, blah. But there's parts of you that you'll never be able to bring into your conscious mind, depending on what type of yogi stories you believe. But like, you're not going to be able to consciously um, alter your digestion. But there's some type of intelligence that's coursing through you. But so, most people think that who they are is that 1%, is that flashlight. And it's just like, dog. Not only is that not the case, that's so terrifyingly not the case that I'm going to have to slowly expose you to the truth so you don't freak the fuck out and maybe even have a psychotic break. Like, that's how not true it is. IFS is kind of a more tender approach than going straight to Jung to helping people recognize that you got a lot more going on inside of you than you think you do. Because with IFS, especially if the person who's doing the IFS on the other person isn't hypnotizing them, they, it gets to stay in the, in the head. It gets to stay like, all right, I can feel that there's this part of me that wants to put my art out, but then there's this other part of me that doesn't want to. That's safe. You know, that's like, but if you hypnotize people, you can start getting to really uncomfortable shit where a different personality would have a different tone of voice. They would have a different posture. There's evidence and there's research on this that one identity could be allergic to orange juice and the other one, and that you can give them orange juice and that they can have a response to it as if they're allergic. And then you can get them to change into a different part and the allergic reaction on their face goes away. There's studies where one part knows a language that the main part, who you think you are, doesn't know. It's spooky and it goes deep. And so IFS is where you can start to get access to some of these parts and still be conscious. What Jung, and he's not a clear writer. He's, he's a very poor writer, God rest his soul. But the content of what he was talking about was so new and so non-linear that he had to, it was, it was just different. But anyways, what he's hinting at is not only do you have parts, all of the parts are in you, in the collective unconscious. And when you dream, you have access to whatever the living, non-local intelligence that's guiding 
whatever it is that the human animal is doing in the psychological sphere of life. King Arthur is in you. Hitler is in you. Jaws is in you. Every possible hero and villain, god and devil from every religion, from every mythology, they're all inside of you. And they are all potential cast of characters that the organizing principle in you can call on to help teach your dumbass something, to help you get over whatever block you currently have in your life. Yeah, I think the IFS is illuminating that that subconscious. And then there's the potential for that barrier between subconscious and unconscious to bring more things to light. And then, you know, we access those, maybe IFS will call exiled parts might become a, um, exactly aware of those. And those become now in the subconscious because we can access them. But there's so much, there's so much brewing down there. So would you say, like, tell me more about what you vision for like, like tell me more about how you see your purpose here on this, on this globe and, and what, how you want to change the world and, and then how, how that self healing process perhaps plays into that. Yeah. Um, I see my purpose as, um, uh, what's the right way to put it? Like a, uh, like a mythological Parsifal which is one of the characters from the King Arthur myths, but it's basically like, I want to go for my quote unquote, what I would see as success, like a person who isn't aware that it's all a fucking game, but I want to do it with the humor of the fool, but I really want to fucking go for it. Like I want to fucking try to do big, you know, shit, but I want to like, I want to compete at the highest level while remembering that I'm a fool, that this is all a game that no one understands, like truly deeply. And we all have to pretend like we're not all just absolutely like what the fuck is going on. But what I see as my purpose is, um, I think of it as a Dharma doula, but I basically see myself as like a midwife for anyone who is around me that is open to it, to try to draw out what their genius is to offer to life. And then, you know, to just constantly be like a conductor for people to just help them remember like, Hey, what's your Dharma? And if you remembered what your Dharma was, what would you be doing right now? You know? And obviously I try to do that with some candidness because like all of us, most of us, all of us, have forgotten our dharma 99% of the time. And that's for people who know it. You know, like if you've ever had an insight about why you're here, uh, if I were to text you 10 times throughout the day, nine out of the 10 times, you're doing something where you're not on task. You might be different because you're in this flow, but most people are, they forget. But so anyways, I want to help people. That's what I see my purpose is. My vision for the world is... I want to be one of the dreamers and uh, creators for a new type of hospital. And I see it as a multi-generational project, but I have a vision for a type of hospital that is um, just fucking beautiful 
and completely beyond my competence and capacity to really bring into the world, but I'm going to continue to like look at it my entire life. Hospital. I, I would love to hear a little bit more of the vividness of that vision. Yeah. What is, what's in the hospital? So the hospital is, um, <clears throat> it is a type of architecture that is like food grows out of the building. It's that entwined with nature. Like it actually produces food. It's got like greenhouses built into it. Like the middle of it, you know, it's like a huge, it's almost like a food forest is in the middle of this architecture. And that um, it kind of has the vibe of a museum. It's got beautiful art all over it. And that there's almost no machinery or if there is, you can't even see it because it's engineered into like the walls and such. And that the doctors are primarily, they use um, somatic science to co-regulate, like to get both hearts into coherence through just like speech and talk and touch. So they really connect with the person that they're helping. And then they use sound, hypnosis, and different like using the human body as a nervous system techniques to bring the patient into um, whatever emotion needs to be felt in that moment. Because fundamentally, for most, almost all chronic disorders, so not acute trauma, but chronic, my radical suggestion is that it is tied to unfelt emotions. And that a skilled midwife with no access to machinery would be able to help nine out of 10 people connect to that emotion and move it in a way that um, if done over the course of a couple of weeks, it would be a totally different person. Um, and that's kind of the dream. Yeah, I think there's, there's so much repressed and suppressed emotion in this culture. And it's so much from that conditioning Again, going back to our experience growing up, where we're our authentic self is not typically nurtured, right? And there's a lot of, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz calls it domestication, mm -hmm. and so we learn to <clears throat> to fit in and conform and put up these false selves and walls to stay attached or to stay safe, right? Gabor Mate talks about this dance between authenticity and attachment, and we often well, to survive, we choose attachment. If the, if the environment's not nurturing, healthfully nurturing our authenticity, which I would say is basically everyone on the planet, at least it's, we're not getting an abundance of nurturance as a, as a species in our childhoods of our authenticity. So we, we turn towards the attach, attachment to survive and we, we put up these guards and walls and masks. And with that comes repressing emotions. With that comes exiling parts of ourselves and so i i'm i'm really curious about this you know whether you're using ifs or you're using different tools to to integrate these these parts of ourselves then and, and access these emotions and let go of these things and and heal this nervous system and and heal any physical ailments like all this stuff brings us back into our wholeness and that's where that's where it's all at um I want to ask you about institutions, but any thoughts on that first? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think one of the most 
useful models for people to contemplate is what you brought up by Gabor Mate. And it's the tension between authenticity and attachment. The other way I've heard it articulated is that humans are the types of spirits that are fundamentally trying to learn the dichotomy of freedom and love. We are the things that yearn for freedom and also the things that yearn for love. And another way to say that is authenticity, which is the freedom to be what you are and its radical uniqueness. And then also attachment, which is to be how you ought to be to have relationship, you know? So it's like, be as radically unique as you can be, but also listen so that you can connect with other radically unique beings. And I really think the best metaphor for that fundamental dichotomy that all of us are trying to explore is jazz. That like the Hmm. essence of jazz is you know what it feels like when all the music is in harmony. You know, like that's what classical music does well. You don't have, no one has to be taught, which is a really cool thing about music. I don't give a fuck what you think is true. Even if you're a nihilist, if the fucking heavy metal drums are just right, you're dancing. Why are you dancing if nothing matters? You can't even fucking help yourself. It's so real. Jazz, though, was the byproduct of people who got so good that they almost got bored with that feeling of playing the right notes. And so then they would start, like, a culture emerged where it's like, we're in sync, we're in sync, we're in sync. The dude with the trumpet's going to go way out here. And almost the art of jazz is how far away, how discordant can it possibly be? And that I can still come back. And like, that's kind of the, like, that's the fuck and like the juice of life on some level. And so like, like just one of the things that's just worth keeping in your heart is be able to listen for the moments like, of course, because we're doing a podcast, this is the right moment for us to be talking about philosophy. But listen for the moments when the right music is to stop talking. You know, like one of the, like a poem I wrote to myself was, um, I can't remember exactly the line, but the essence is, when I'm watching a sunset, all of existential philosophy is rendered mute. You know, it's like, I don't give a fuck what Sartre, wrote, I don't give a fuck what they wrote about it not being real. I don't give a fuck what Sam Harris believes about X, Y, and Z. I don't give a fuck what Nietzsche said. I don't give a fuck what Kant did. I'm with my partner looking at the sun go down and everything is fucking yummy and good. And then on the flip side, like if I'm watching someone I love die, I don't give a fuck what the, what the optimists wrote about or what Viktor Frankl talked about. You know, right now, I'm in my grief, and I'm, I'm worshiping at the altar of the part of me that thinks that this is all fucked up and that it's not fair, you know? And it's like, that's jazz. Hmm. And that the philosopher is, at least for me, I used philosophy as a way to pretend that I wasn't playing jazz that I was on the outside watching the jazz players trying to explain jazz to some audience that is like a made up thing. But really the truth is 
I wasn't doing that. And I was actually playing jazz, but I had the most boring fucking instrument. I wouldn't listen to anyone else's instrument and I wouldn't play with anyone because I was in this delusional state that I wasn't in the game. Yeah, I resonate with this. Against that integration between mind and heart. And at the end of the day, we want that we want to live in that that juice, that flow, you know. And so that that and that integration with authenticity and attachment, right? How do we express that? that jazz lick, how to express that authentic self while being in tune with the rest of the ensemble, right? While being connected with the the bass player, right? Because if you're if you're 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 given that spontaneous trumpet jazz lick, but you're not listening to the bass, then you're out of harmony. Right. So it's this it's this I'm reminded of Dan Siegel who talks about rather than thinking of me versus we, just think of we. Mui, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> There's this interpersonal space between humans, right? So how do we how do we get our needs met while also nurturing the needs of others and all these things can come into play and create win-win. You know, so like that's that's if I you know, one term that boils down my vision for humans is creating win-win and no self-sacrifice and also nurturing those interpersonal exchanges. So that's where like, and I, you know, we could go forever talking about all sorts of topics and I'm, I want to value your time here, of course, but I am curious, like, any thoughts on, on how, what we've talked about on this personal level, right? The psychological level, how that manifests in institutions. We've, we've, we've touched on the school system and, you know, I, I like to, I like to assert and and share and spotlight that these these institutions that are essentially based on command and control, punishment, rewards, right? Those are the manifestations of of our childhoods, right? It's, so all these things come into play. So I see, like, when we talk about centralized control, we talk about centralized top-down government, we talk about you know compulsory school systems that are funneling children in, into these these environments, you know, we can talk about economic systems and we talk about centralized currency. Like these things are all control, control mechanisms. And so, yeah, any reflections on, on these relationships? Cause what I, like what I want to build, what I want to birth is when we, as we integrate these child parts of ourselves, then we can, we can step into win-win and not any command and control paradigms, not any do this because, because the authority figure said so, do this because the politician said so, right? We let go of that fear and that following following orders, following directions. That's kind of like, even if it's not talked about, that's that's at the, the, the sort of the spine of the skeleton of this culture. Like, there's so much of this at, um, that's hoisting up society. And I think we can create a society that's built on trust, harmony, win-win, interpersonal. Um, flourishing. So, and I think we can create, and we can create all these economic systems and or different types of spontaneous systems that that um, that nurture the individual as well as the group. So, yeah, any 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 way you want to volley back to that. Yep. The thing that I think most people who have the aspirations to change institutions need to hear that they don't hear is. I can feel that I need to blow my nose again, but I'm not going to. Okay. <laughs> do what you need to do. No, I'm good. Okay. 
So the thing that I think people who have the aspirations to change institutions need to hear that they don't often hear is that one, whatever institution it is, is very likely way more competent than you're willing to give it credit for. Like if you're in, if the institution is big enough for it to be on your radar and that you want to change it, it means that it's working way better than you probably think it does or else you wouldn't even be able to hear about it. And two, I don't know this to be the case, but this is what I believe, is that to change the institutions, it's a multi-generational project and you will not see it done in your lifetime. Are you still willing to work on it your entire life? It's kind of the vibe. So the first part is, if you haven't planned an event or if you haven't ran a company, if you haven't done something in your life that has tried to aggregate the behavior of a hundred plus people ever in your life, and I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to the audience. I'm just talking to, to just the archetype. But it's like, who the fuck are you to be trying to change institutions when you have literally no experience with how hard it is to try to get a group of people to do something? You know, and like, cause I know a lot of people in my life who want to change big things about culture, but it's like, they're not disciplined. They don't have technical skills. They don't work on anything for more than a couple of hours at a time. There's no consistency through what their and their occupations and their lifestyles reflect their complete lack of like the type of effort that it would take to do something phenomenal. And it's like, you want to critique capitalism every time we talk. And you, like, what are you going to do? What are we doing here? Really what we're doing here is like, we're, we are pretending to be intimate as the clock clicks down to the thing that we're in denial about, which is the fact that we're going to die. You know? And I don't miss that life. I used to live in that life, you know, where it's like everything we're doing is just kind of bullshit. We're, we're, we're not going anywhere. It's, you know, the people who are waiters and waitresses for 10 years and, you know, they're in the, you know, and if that triggers you, don't email me. I won't respond. But the, we all know those type of people. So, like, if you are willing to work on it your entire life and still not see it done in your lifetime, but it's that important to you. It's like, okay, start training your competence. You know, like throw a fucking party for 10 people and then slowly work up to like, you know, how do I organize a food drive in my local town? And you will just see so fucking quickly how incredibly hard it is. You know, that like what the school system is doing on some level is it's keeping people away from crime. You know, like there's this in game theory, there's this thing called externalities, which is basically it's all of the effects of a choice that you make that you couldn't have predicted would have been outcomes until the effect started. And it's basically whenever you're in a complex system, any one thing that you change to try to solve one problem creates more new problems that you didn't see before. So it's just, it's incredibly hard and it takes like incredible consistency and discipline and competency to get your yourself to a level where anything that you would try to do with an institution 
for it not just to make things worse or for you to just be wasting your fucking time. Yeah. I mean, starting with that sphere of control is is essential and starting with yourself, starting with your own competency, exactly. your own self-work, your own flourishing life. Like that's that's the way I see it playing out. That's what I want to inspire people to do is, you know, build that new and maybe it's absolutely multi-generational maybe. Um but build build that new paradigm from the inside out from with your own with your own personal life, right? And so and just just so you know like the way I'm seeing it with in terms of I don't I don't see a changing institutions from within. I I see I like the idea of you know create criticize by creating and and building 100%. building what you wish to see in the world and and make that system obsolete. And and like I think 100%. as we build, you know, let's build a flourishing I love seeing all, all the different education options that are starting to sprout up in this culture and the marketplace and different different hey here's a new way that we can educate here's a new way that more that maybe nurtures the curiosity of the child right or let, let's build let's build what we want to create in the world and then people can start to see that that glowing fire and maybe hey maybe I want to come join that right and then ultimately even the people in the institutions right like that's like I said, I'm a former teacher like this I could I could talk to you about that forever my my one interesting nugget about my whole story is that I've been fired up about like abolishing the conventional school system and creating new paradigms and new options. But I've also worked in that system. Yeah. I, I see, like, I see, I see teachers who, who really care. And I see, and I see at the end of the day, we're all one human tribe. We're all humans and we're yeah. all the same needs. So it's like, how do we, like, can we create, can we create new things outside the, the, the existing institutions and systems and inspire people to, 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 to walk across a bridge perhaps without otherizing people, without labeling people as, as enemies, right? But also, you know, recognizing the, the honest truth about how the institutions are getting in the way of human flourishing, um, but building new, building those bridges. Um, and, and I think ultimately it's like, it's like the politicians need MDMA, like it's <laughs> only, only if they consent to it, of course. But, you know, it's, I, I, I Everything, all the all the coercion and corruption, I think, in this world is just people just want love and connection, you know. So the good news and the bad news is that <clears throat> culture is um, linked to technology now in a way where if you want to help educate the next generation, you don't have to get permission. You just have to make the content that they'll watch because they're all on their phones. And so it's, it's really, we're in the midst of a revolutionary time for education and it's going to be interesting. Um, this was fucking great and I'm going to have to go. I have a call at one that I have to do, but all good. Hey, this has been really beautiful, thorough conversation. Um, everyone check out Eric Gotzi, ericgotzi.com, uh, at Eric Gotzi on Instagram, on Instagram, right? Yes, sir. Anything else you want to, to to leave our audience with? Write down your dreams. And if you're interested in dreams, check out the book, Inner Work by Robert Johnson. It'll change your fucking life if you start to listen and talk to and respond to your dreams. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Eric. Beautiful, man. Thank you. This was fucking a pleasure. And uh, we'll continue the conversation. Sounds great. All, All right. right. Cheers.